This is a Federal News Network podcast. Forget about the idea of six degrees of separation. In the world of government contracting, people are no more than a hop or two away from one another. That's why, with a pressured end-of-the-year fiscal coming, my next guest says it's a good time to remember a few of the human relations ground rules. Federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen joins me now. And basically, Larry, you're saying that people need to remember that they're going to interact not just now, but again in the future. So you better just be basically nice to people, even the annoying ones. Tom, that's exactly right. It's a little bit like in the background of your mind, you should always hear Disney's It's a Small World After All, because that's really the type of world we work in here in government acquisition, particularly if you're in the IDIQ space, professional services, IT commercial items a little bit more broadly. There are people who you're going to be keeping uh, running into over and over again. Sometimes they're going to be with a competitor company. You might find out one day that your company has hired that person to come and work with you on a common project. Or you might find that that person is now over you or in a government agency where they're in a position to direct business to your company or not. I've talked before about the importance of personal relationships. What I'm talking about in this article, Tom, is just one specific indication of what that really means. It's you're going to, you have to be nice to people. You have to be able to get along with people because you're going to keep seeing them over and over again. And if you burn a bridge, that's going to hurt both your company, but also you personally. And you need to be careful and keep in mind that we're all in the same stadium and we're all playing the same game for a specified period of time. Do you have knowledge of a recent incident involving someone that maybe? learn that lesson the hard way? Nobody who's learned the lesson the hard way, Tom, recently, but somebody, a couple of people I've seen lately who are coming close. You know, <laughs> it's great to come into a new market with a ton of energy and some good ideas. Every market, including this one, needs people to come in with new ideas, new philosophies, new ways of looking at things. But you also have to temper that with the fact that there are reasons why people in this market do things a certain way. It's not necessarily because they're hidebound to a process, although some are, but the reason you do certain things is because you can't do them another way. Law or regulation says you can't do that. And when you come in new, you probably don't know that some of the things that you think are brilliant ideas have been tried before, uh, but they can't be done because the rules and regulations would either get your customer or your company in trouble. So finding a way for those people who are coming in with new ideas to use that energy appropriately, direct it properly, get it done so that we actually can get some neat stuff done in government acquisition, because we don't want to just sit around here doing the same type of stuff every year, but doing it in such a way that is respectful and mindful of the rules so that Nobody gets in trouble for being innovative, which, as you and I know, would have the net effect of people being even less innovative than they are now. Yes, and you should be good to subcontractors because the business guy at the subcontractor that you're dealing with could end up being the manager of relationships at some larger company that you may want to do business with at some point. 
And if you treated her well as a sub, then it could come back to help you later on when suddenly you need that person's help for your business. Well, that really is true, Tom. Inside industry, and I want to emphasize just inside industry, keeping away from the government part of this, there really is kind of a game of musical chairs that goes on. People change jobs, people change companies, and they change roles and responsibilities. Uh, Everybody has to be aware of that. Just because the person that kind of annoyed you in one position moved on to another company does not mean you don't you'll never see that person again in fact the odds are that you will see that person and you will see that person in a more critical role for you or your company than they were in previously we're speaking with larry allen president of allen federal business partners and on the other topic you're writing about recently is GSA's leadership focus might be a little bit on some of the non-core issues and not enough on the big projects they have going for GSA's core mission of contracting and buildings and vehicles. What's going on? Lack of people? Well, lack of people is certainly part of it, Tom, specifically in the contracting officer organization, GSA, and government people understand that as the 1102 group. And there's a real shortage of contracting officers at GSA, uh, which is potentially something pretty critical for the government's largest civilian acquisition agency. Uh, So you would imagine that GSA would be trying to bring in acquisition people and acquisition talent to fill those roles and work on the multiple projects they have coming up. The Polaris project, the Services Mac that will replace the OASIS contract, the new contracts that GSA wants to stand up inside the schedules program with new terms and conditions, and not to mention keeping an eye on existing contract programs like Alliant 2 and what happens when that becomes Alliant 3, as well as some of the smaller socioeconomic identified small contracts like Vets 2 and 8A Stars. So, you know, these are things that are core missions to GSA, and it's important to focus on them. Certainly, sustainability and some of the other political goals that came in with this administration have their place. And I don't mean to suggest that they don't. But what I do mean to suggest is that you have to be able to walk before you can run. And walking in this case means hitting your marks on the basic contract and customer service programs that you've got in place. And if you've got that down, when you've got down that down, then it's great to go out and run and do sustainability and all of the other things that you want to do. But right now, GSA, I don't think is there yet, Tom. You got to nail the basics down before you can go out and add new things onto your agenda. Plus, with some of the things that are central to them, like these big IDIQs, they, as well as other agencies trying to establish them, have a real problem of protests on their hands. And that means you need a lot of brain power on these things just to make sure they become protest-proof and you're listening to industry. Well, right. And that, that really is a big issue. One of the other things I'm concerned about right now is the number of protests we're getting on these IDIQ vehicles, particularly as they are being put in place. We had a program killed, Alliant to Small Business, because of protests. Right now, NITAC over at NIH has had some significant delays just when they thought they were out of the protest woods, not so fast. And GSA is starting already to see that in the Polaris area. But protests have their place in government acquisition, But you don't want to protest to the extent that companies and government agencies wake up one morning and say, you know, 
These large multiple award indefinite delivery and definite quantity contracts are more trouble than they're worth. Sure, they're great once we get them in place, but we successfully have to climb more and higher hills to get them in place. And it's not too far-fetched, Tom, to imagine them saying, you know, we're going to go use our limited acquisition resources to do acquisition in another way. And I think that's significant for a couple of reasons. One is it certainly increases overhead for government and industry, making acquisition more expensive. And ironically, it's going to make life harder for a number of small businesses, those businesses that have really excelled under today's IDIQ contracts, whether uh, as a prime contractor or a major player on a subcontracting program. So I think we have to think hard and long about protests and just what it is we really hope to gain. But keep in mind the damage that we can do to that type of contracting if there's an endless march of protests. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, Welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent, and what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, It it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, And we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, So my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. As we continue to face COVID-19, we're now facing flu season. Influenza has the potential to infect millions, putting lives and the healthcare system at risk. Now more than ever, it's essential to protect yourself from influenza by getting the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is safe and effective and can't give you the flu. To protect yourself and those at highest risk, get your flu vaccine. Learn more at michigan.gov flu. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First. Always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. <laughs> 